Why music? Well, we can look all the way back to the age of Homer and then the balladeers of Europe and the Bankel Song of Germany, all these different traditions, the troubadours of France to a certain extent, although they were more connected to the court. The ways in which music is used in situations without print to spread news. Because music is something that can be broadcast well, the poet, poetic rhyme allows one to memorize what is sung so that somebody can transmit the news without having to write it down. And also, it's an effective means of communication and a ritual event that allows the news to be told in a compelling way. To look at the corridos, it's interesting to look at a couple of them. For example, the Battle of Celaya. In the Battle of Celaya is one in which Francisco Villa was essentially defeated by Obregón, who was once his general, but was eventually fighting against Francisco Villa, often referred to as Pancho Villa of the North. There are different versions of corridos played, some of which favor the Villa side, some of which favor Obregón and his troops. Let's look at one. Defensa de Celaya y Triunfo del General Obregón. Um, the defense of Celaya and triumph of General Obregón. Obregón, ya en la batalla, dispuso cinco sectores. Alrededor de Celaya, mando bravos defensores. The, the uh, translation of that being Obregón, now in the battle, put five regiments around Celaya, and he commanded brave defenders. We can see there that it is one in favor of Obregón. That corrido and others will talk about the fact that he lost his arm and kept fighting. Comparing that with others that say it was treachery by Obregón and favoring the Villa side. Corridos are no longer the central newspaper or the central popular music of Mexico, but they're still popular. And in pop music today, for example, the narco corridos of Norteño bands give the exploit of drug dealers and other rebels, much in the same tradition that the corridos talked about revolutionary figures before. The post-revolutionary era is particularly fascinating in Mexico City, and it is here that we turn to thinking about modern Mexico City, the birth of modernity in Mexico. And probably the person that is, well, undoubtedly the person that is most associated with the bolero is Agustin Lara. Born three years earlier than claimed, he was born on October 30th of 1897 on Calle Puente del Cuervo, today Columbia Street in Mexico City, rather than Tlacotalpan, Veracruz. And like Frida Kahlo, his neighbor in the Incoyacan, he invented for himself many things, including a different date of birth, a different place of birth. But in fact, he spent much of his childhood growing up in Coyacan. Why Veracruz? Why would he sort of fictionalize that? And in fact, he did spend time there growing up uh, during his childhood. The reason why you would fictionalize that is that it was, Veracruz was seen at that time as sort of the place where the most interesting, particularly the sort of um, with African roots music was coming from. Veracruz, rinconcito donde hacen su nido las olas del mar. 
Veracruz Pedacito de patria que sabe sufrir y cantar And actually, the Augustine Lara uh, was, was born in very wealthy circumstances, but that changed, as it did for many people with the revolution, where he essentially found himself working to make a living in brothels, playing piano, tangos at the time. But once he became familiar with the bolero, that became his baby for the rest of his life. The first person he declared himself to, as an interesting side note, is Martina Kahlo, Frida's uh, striking sister. An interesting thing about the bolero, the Mexican bolero, really started by Augustine Lara, is that he took this guitar form, this guitar and voice form, and put it to piano and violin, sort of urbanized it. And part of this was because he learned to play piano at a very early age, but he says that if he could sing better, if he had more of the sort of stylish bel canto voice of uh, that was very popular in, in urban music for sort of romantic music, he would have and if he would have played guitar and never thought another thing about it. But instead he played piano so he could do the flourishing arpeggios and everything to give it sort of a style and flavor of the urban area. And in so doing he really invented a subgenre, the Mexican bolero, which since then has probably been as associated with bolero as any other type, the Cuban bolero, etc. It's the Mexican bolero which really has taken off as musica romantica. The story of the bolero is tied up with not only music, but also the technology of early radio and film. It was often joked that Augustine Lara had a great face for radio. At about 99 pounds, and always rather emaciated. He was not exactly uh, your typical pop uh, diva or pop star. However, in one of the most celebrated marriages ever in Mexico, perhaps not as famous as Diego uh, Rivera and Frida Kahlo, he married Maria Felix, the great, beautiful film star. In fact, she was one of eight wives that Augustine Lara had, all of them beautiful. Perhaps nothing represents Augustine Lara's incredible output. He wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs, claimed to have written up to 700. Nothing perhaps represents these better than Solamente Una Vez, uh, which the song goes something like this. Solamente una vez, amén la vida. Solamente una vez y nada más. Una vez nada más en mi huerto brilló la esperanza, la esperanza que alumbra el camino de mi soledad. Una vez nada más. And it continues like that. So you can see how different it is from some of the popular music of Mexico and the countryside that's represented, for example, uh, in the late tradition by mariachi, with more of the sort of vocalizations um, and um, the sort of striking sounds. Bolero was much more in that bel canto, urban, classical pop tradition. So, how did this music develop and why did it become so popular? Well, we have to look at its context of birth, Mexico City in the post-revolutionary period. Bonfil Bataya says the quote that after the revolution, cities grew like mushrooms after a rain. 
In fact, as Alejandro Ara points out, uh, Mexico City grew from 350,000 Christians at the turn of the century, as he says, until by the mid-20s it had 1,750,000 unbelievers who had left their native soil. That is a quote by Ara himself. And in it they left behind many of their traditions. They left their rural homelands to help construct what Augustine Lara referred to, lovingly referred to as this capital of sin. Who were these people? They were people that came from a decimated countryside. We can think of the ironic effects of the revolution. Here was a revolution that was designed to create an agrarian socialist society. But 10% of the men in Mexico died. Rural Mexico agriculture were decimated. If anything, what the revolution did is speed up urbanization in Mexico as all those people from the rural countryside fled and moved to the city looking for jobs. These people were not necessarily yet looking for some sort of nostalgia uh, rural situation. Rather, they're trying to figure out how to live in an urban situation. And many of the urban films, uh, many early films, demonstrate this too. The Caberatera films, the cabaret films, that show sort of this new love and fear of the urban situation. There was a fascination with the fallen woman, the aventurera, this woman who comes from sort of innocent background and is corrupted. In other words, they were nostalgic, but they were nostalgic sort of for a Porphyrian city, the city of the past, the sort of genteel city. And we're trying to how to make, make Mexico City anew. It was exciting and it was frightening for them. And numerous quotes from the period of the time talk about how people suddenly did not have somebody else in a rural village looking over their shoulder, but had a new life to create for themselves. They were the moderns. An interesting side note, I, I said I wasn't going to talk too much about the present, but the way in which playwright Carlos Olmos has resurrected Aventurera, what was an Augustine Lara song, became a great film, Aventurera, one of the classic films of the golden age of, of Mexican film, and is now a musical. And most of the players are from telenovelas. It's an interesting new nostalgia for the nostalgic early post-revolutionary period. So we get these layers of nostalgia as each generation uses these old texts in new ways. And that is, if nothing else, a ritual. So in the case of Carlos Olmos's recent musical, Aventurera, it became a critique of the PRI and corruption by looking back at the early heady days of Aventurera, when there was still a lot of hope for modernity in Mexico City. So that's a bolero, just a taste of that, and I recommend going out and buying CDs. Solamente una vez Amén la vida Solamente una vez Y nada más Una vez nada más en mi huerto brillo la esperanza of Augustine Lara, Tonya La Negra, who is uh, his probably his greatest interpreter, and any number of boleristas from the post-revolutionary period. The last type of music I want to talk about is mariachi, what I think we often see as the prototypical, the archetype, and the greatest Mexican music, and I think for good reason. 
There are those who claim that the historical origins of mariachi are really with the French intervention in the late 1800s in, in Mexico, with the idea and the assumption that it is sort of a change of the, of the French word for marriage, and that's where the word mariachi comes from. However, well before the French intervention, decades before, the word mariachi is used in a few documents in Mexico. However, it might be pointed out that French influence certainly predates the more direct intervention of Maximilian and Carlota in the 1860s. And the idea is that by playing music for French weddings and seeing this type of music in the sort of haciendas and especially in the city that it was adopted and that the old forms like son, um, the, the traditional conjunto with the harps and the violins was modified and that this new music was added to it and there we get mariachi, a sort of marriage of music. However, there are those like Hermes Raphael who claims that mariachi is a Mesoamerican tradition and gives much less credit to foreign influences. He argues that the term is derived from a word in the language of the Coca people of Central Jalisco. Raphael is seeking a distinctly Mexican derivation. However, there is little in the instrumentation that indicates indigenous influence. Yet it would appear that Hermes' argument is at least partially correct based on the linguistics. I prefer to leave this problem of origins as sort of an open question. There's no doubt that it is a marriage, a mixture of European influences and more local, long-term influences, as really is true of everything in the New World, especially the art and music of the United States. What is most important here is that mariachi developed in Mexico and has become the quintessential Mexican musical art form. The early mariachi ensembles comprised mainly of strings, harp, which was really eventually dropped from most of, of the ensembles. And one of the things that differentiates a, a small sewn ensemble with the later mariachi ensembles. Guitars were added not long after the harps. And guitaron, a large six-string guitar, whose strings are usually plucked in an octave pairs, adding deep bass support. Later, mariachi ensembles grew to include violins, usually two of them, vihuela, and sometimes the jarana, a small guitar. One of the most interesting things and least known things about uh, mariachi is that the trumpet didn't come along till the 1930s, and it was because of radio. These stringed instruments were not particularly good at carrying over early radio equipment. So they started adding trumpets, which would give good punctuation and add to the ensemble when over radio, and that took off for the actual mariachi ensemble. So, although mariachi had been recorded as early as 1908 in Chicago, it was live radio broadcasting that most transformed the playing style and ensemble composition. Now, the son, at one point in the 1800s, added the modern six-string guitar as well. And that, just as trumpet later did to the guitar, that had drowned out the less vociferous stringed instruments, such as harps and especially violins. And when the son ensembles adopted the modern guitar, it had what uh, the musicologist Stanford argued is a devastating effect over the traditional conjunto, causing the violins to atrophy. This has always happened. happens. New equilibriums are always established with ensembles when a new instrument, a louder instrument particularly, is added. And so the son ensemble was able to um, sort of compensate in the early mariachi ensemble. And the same thing happened to mariachi when it got the trumpet. More guitars, more violins. And that's one of the ways that mariachi ensembles started to get as large as they are now. 
the largest being all the way up to 500 people uh, put together in the Zocalo in Mexico City for, for particular events to have a large mariachi orchestra. Who are some of the great names of mariachi? Jose Alfredo Jimenez. And you might want to, if, if you're not familiar with mariachi or want to revisit some of the classics, think about taking these down and buying um, some of these CDs or MP3s. Jose Alfredo Fredo Jimenez, Pedro Infante, Lucharez, Javier Solis, Jorge Negrete, and my favorite, Lola Beltran. There is, uh, for me, no greater singer in the history of Mexico than Lola Beltran. And she's part of an incredible tradition of female Mexican singers belting out um, pop music with that sort of throaty, strong sense that I think really we get all the way up to the day with singers like Ana, Ana Gabriel. By the late 1940s, these men and women had largely supplanted the great boleristas. That is, mariachi as far as popular music, the kind of music that everybody listened to, particularly when we're talking about the city, in some ways was a very modern phenomenon. It was in the mid-20th century that the bolero was sort of it's always going to be popular in Mexico City, or at least for the foreseeable future. But it was mariachi that started coming on strong, ranchera music played by mariachi ensembles in particular, from the great films of the Golden Age, the films of the haciendas, that you start to get mariachi as a sort of dominant type of popular music. It's interesting to look at some of what happened to these great names that became mariachi stars. People that before, for example, had been opera singers and bakers or what have you that rose to fame as mariachi singers and icons. El hijo del pueblo, the, the child of, of the people, José Alfredo Jiménez. Behind the scenes, he's an incredibly urban bohemian, and he instead on screen becomes a sort of revolution, rural revolutionary. From the sombrero to the poncho, the ranchera movement took the basic symbols of rural Mexico and enlarged them, almost to the level of caricature. And as Octavio Paz said about the Mexican fiesta, I think so much goes from mariachi. He said, there's nothing so joyous as a Mexican fiesta, but there's also nothing so sorrowful. And it's that mix which drives mariachi music and makes it so intrinsically and wonderfully Mexican. The great ranchera music and charo films greatly reinforced and accelerated this sense of the rural, sort of nostalgic revolutionary as the, the center of the nation, and it was part of the nation-building project in the mid-20th century. Instead of a call for the overthrow of the hacienda and the hierarchy itself, the charo films, the films that are associated with this ranchera music, 
really are more about reform. The sort of revolutionary attitude had given way in fiction and in film, just as in the real politics of the PRI in the mid-20th century, from revolution to sort of reform. And the replacement of the bad patron in the hacienda with a good one. So the revolution essentially reinvented in these films and in this music. The good charo, the PRI, as it were, forms a moral order, replacing the bad and antiquated hacendado, um, dictatorship, which leads to certain stereotypes, simplicities in ideology and in image. There was a plaque in an exhibit at the National Museum of Popular Culture, for example, that read, El mariachi entre la tradición y, y el estereotipo. So mariachi between tradition and stereotype. Just as the post-revolutionary bolero was modernity for the masses, the Charles complex presented an equally accessible nationalism. Given its ideological implications, however, many Mexican cultural critics are at best ambivalent when it comes to ranchero music and the Charles film trend. Carlos Monsivais describes the Golden Age film era as, quote, the conquest of credibility with its credulous audience, gained by idealizing provincial life and the rural world, demonizing and consecrating the urban environment, exalting machismo, transforming social defects into virtues, defending conservative values to the bitter end, verbally at least, and putting on a pretense of attacking the heterodox attitudes assumed in the attempt to win back audiences to the box office. He concludes that the achievements of Mexican cinema have been sociological rather than artistic. Now, that kind of shows, and this is from Carlos Monsivais, one of the greatest, um, really the greatest sociologist, I think, and had the greatest social impact, has had in Mexico, and is just such a great critic and has wonderful insights on Mexico City and urban Mexican life and history. And I think this statement demonstrates some of the almost antipathy, some local critics in Mexico City have of things like mariachi. And in fact, mariachi was part of sort of a conservatizing trend in the mid-20th century. And I think it works very differently in the United States, where it's more of a symbol of sort of liberational Mexicanism, if you will. And while perhaps the, the conservative period we're talking about here was not quite as violent or extreme as the 50s in the United States during that, that same decade, Conservative trend in mid-century Mexico did kind of throw a wet blanket over the post-revolutionary party that's represented by a music like Bolero. Those who saw the post-revolutionary era as a space for modern experimentation, whether communist libertines like Rivera and Kahlo or cultural anarchists like Agustin Lara, were forced to witness this national retrenchment and the end of their utopian dreams. So they kind of blame sometimes mariachi, in a sense, some of the sort of urban academics and intellectuals. However, I think, and here's where the ethnographic, the contemporary, I think, really is most important about mariachi. It is so infused in Mexican culture that it really is central, and there is no more important or beautiful or artistic uh, music in Mexico, modern Mexico, than mariachi music. It's far more than an art, ideological artifact. Mariachi reflects some of the deepest moral beliefs and values of the Mexican people, particularly as it relates to family. And one need only experience a mariachi session in a neighborhood restaurant or fiesta to come to that conclusion. Mariachi is a uniquely Mexican contribution to world music. It's evolved into more than popular entertainment. It's really developed into a folk ritual, a classical music style, and an art form. 
Um, I myself, when I was looking at the popular music in Mexico, I found myself overlooking mariachi in Mexico City, I should say. I was looking at all these sort of popular musics that might be, say, top of the hits for the contemporary forms, or in the past forms, looking for those that are most discussed in the academic literature, and realized I was somewhat overlooking what we in the U.S. often think as the Mexican music mariachi. And one of the reasons I was overlooking it is because it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. It's not on the charts, per se. And it's not even necessarily in the urban restaurant or the urban radio or the urban streets. Where it is, is in every important domestic ritual. Births, deaths, certainly quinceanera, um, weddings. It's all over. And it was so much omnipresent and part of even the life of the outsider, such as myself, as an anthropologist studying music in Mexico, that it becomes so infused as part of your life that you start, it's so important that you start to take it for granted. Now, perhaps the latest, last major step in the mariachi's musical evolution was the addition of the requinto guitar, an instrument first popularized by a bolerista, Alfredo Gil, who was a trio star of the late 1940s and 1950s. Now, I can't go into too great detail here, but trio is basically what happened to Bolero. As Bolero returns after Augustine Lara, essentially, to its guitar roots, and you get these trios, which don't necessarily have just three um, people playing guitar, but a guitar-based, beautiful, um, soft, harmonic um, urban music, still very different from mariachi. But it's important to point out that the two, mariachi and bolero, are not completely distinct forms of music. Much of the ranchera music actually were early called bolero ranchero because they blended sort of bolero melodies with mariachi um, vocalizations. So the two did have an important effect on each other, in addition to being distinct types of music. And one final thing to point about mariachi is how it connects to uh, mid-20th century and the people of Mexico. We can, in some ways, look at the rise of its popularity and the rise of the ranchera films and the charro, the Mexican cowboy icon, as a new type of nostalgia. In the mid-20th century, no longer is it people that have fled from the rural countryside to enter Mexico City, but more and more the people at the artistic and popular culture center of Mexico City are people that were born there. And so these are people that have nostalgia often for a rural countryside that they don't even really know very well, that they didn't experience. And as opposed to their parents who kind of wanted to forget about the cataclysm of the revolution and what was happening in the rural areas, these children of those revolutionaries, in some ways the children of the boleristas, the mariachi generation, the ranchera generation, as you will, wanted to create a new sense of Mexicanidad, of Mexicanism, that sort of recaptured that rural sense and belief in values and ideas that we get with the rise of ranchera music. All of that is much too simple a way of explaining any of these musics. They are different things to different people. Ritually, they play out different ways in different contexts. But hopefully that just gives you a taste of the incredible diversity of Mexican music and the incredible diversity of interpretations and opinions within Mexico on these types of music and how they relate to society. This is probably a good place to end the historical review because I'm running out of time. But each of these musical forms and eras deserves fuller treatment. And I do want to recommend my book, 
not so much as an overview of these musics, but rather as an index. I'd like you to turn to the bibliography and see all these wonderful writings, many, if not most, by uh, Mexican musicologists and ethnomusicologists and historians, uh, literature that's not read enough in the United States to understand the diversity of Mexican music, and in particular how it relates to Mexican musical ritual. I have not brought us up to pop, rock, I haven't discussed some of the traditional types of music associated with other parts of the country, such as the marimba of the South, or the Yucatecan music, often associated with bolero, actually, and many other types of music. I also did not discuss the ethnographic resonance, the way these musics are played today, and how that relates to and shows changes since the historical developments of these musics. And in fact, we can look at current events. One that I look at at the end of the book is in 2000 with the inauguration day of Vicente Fox and how all of these types of music play out for different audiences and different political purposes, but how they're all still relevant in their own way. Thank you for listening, and if anybody has any comments or thoughts on anything they've heard, I would welcome you to Through Nuestra Familia, to get a hold of me. My name is Mark Pedelty. I'm in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. I want to thank Joseph Fuentes and all of the people at Nuestra Familia for broadcasting this wonderful series of podcasts. Thanks.